listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. All right, today we're going to look at the nature of salvation and the evidence of salvation, the nature of salvation. How can you know whether or not you're in a right standing with God? And what's the evidence of whether or not you're in a right standing with God, whether or not you are rightly related to him, whether or not you're really saved? And where we're going to turn for the answers to this is where we always turn God's word, the Bible, in particular, the book of Acts and the 15th chapter. Turn with me to our Lord's word, Acts chapter 15, as we continue verse by verse through the entire book of Acts, beginning in verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there's some biblical terminology for us the word saved. And there are two types of people in the world. We boil it all down, even though there are billions of people, there are only two types of people. There are those who are saved and those who are not saved. It's right here in the word of God. And you can and you should, you must know which of those you are. So some brothers came down from Judea and they're teaching the believers in the midst of this movement of God where people are getting saved left and right. And they say, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, in other words, a big discussion debate happened, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. You're going to see this repeatedly in Acts chapter 15. The conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, another phrase you're going to see again and again in Acts chapter 15, the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. What we're seeing here is the development of the church. Previously, we saw how they had appointed elders over the churches, and now we're seeing, because this is a huge issue involving what do we do with the Gentiles and what is the role of the Old Testament law, particularly circumcision being the primary evidence of whether or not you were a Jew, whether or not you were a God-fearer, was whether or not you were circumcised. So this big debate ensues, and they have to go and they have to have a powwow. Now, they involve the apostles because the apostles are those upon which the churches are being built, humanly speaking. They are the ones who have the theological training, the knowledge of who Jesus is and how he's presented throughout the Old Testament. And the elders are those who are at the local outposts and they're working together, the leaders within the churches and the leaders of the church, humanly speaking, the apostles, and the elders working together. So we're seeing them come together to discuss 
and to share testimony of what God had done. But, verse five, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So you have the people who are Jews, the Pharisees, well-versed in the Old Testament, their way of dealing with the non-Jews who are accepting Jesus as their savior, they're saying we need to get them to adhere to all of the things that devout Jews adhered to. That is necessary in order for them to be saved. So you have the people who are interested in works, behavior, deeds, religious observation, which by the way is not evil religious observation, it's the law of Moses given by God. So let's not shun or, or downplay the significance of the Old Testament. That was given to Moses, remember? Given to Moses, but it's the law of God himself. It's good, it's perfect, it's flawless. But the big question is, what do non-Jews do with the law? What is the role of the law now that the Jewish Messiah prophesied about in the law has come? That the law has been fulfilled. Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's resurrected, and he's ascended. Now that that's happened, what is the role of the law in the life of not just the Jew, but in particular, these non-Jews who are embracing the Jewish Messiah. So the Pharisees come up with this idea, they need to observe all of the Old Testament law just like the Jews, just like we Pharisees have been teaching, they need to observe all of the law as well. In fact, unless they do, they can't be saved. Very significant debate that's happening. Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, what kind of a witness that they are indeed believers, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. The Holy Spirit being given to the Gentiles just as he was given to the Jews on, in Acts chapter two was evidence that they are just as saved as the Jewish believers were. Verse nine, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter was a Jew speaking to the Pharisees and saying, listen, it's all grace, whether you're a Jew or whether you're not a Jew. We're all saved the same way. We all receive the Holy Spirit in the same way. God wasn't a respecter of persons. Verse 12, and all of the assembly fell silent, just like this. No, you ruined it. <laughs> all of the assembly fell silent 
and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. So first Peter gets up and gives his testimony. Now Barnabas and Paul get up and give their testimony. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Why were the signs and wonders done through Barnabas, a Jew, and Paul, a Jew, who, by the way, was a Pharisee. Why were those signs and wonders done among the Gentiles? In this, for the same reason that the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles, to show that Jew and Gentile are together in one body called the church. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 3. Write it down. Ephesians chapter three. Remember, the things you write down are the things you remember. The things you remember are the things you apply. The things you apply are the things that will change your life when it comes to the word of God. Ephesians chapter three, Paul, the Pharisee, who is now an apostle, talks about God in prior days, talking about this mystery that God would one day in the future, which the future has now come, put Jew and Gentile together in one body called the church. You're part of that one body. Red, yellow, black, and white, we're all precious. We're all forgiven in God's sight through the person and the finished work of Jesus on the cross, which is acceptable to God the Father. How do we know that it's acceptable to God the Father? Because Jesus ain't in some tomb somewhere. Jesus is not in a tomb. God raised him from the dead as the verdict, the seal of approval, the statement of approval. That's how we know that what Jesus did on the cross was satisfactory to God the Father for the removal of everybody's sins, for everybody who's given their life to Jesus and accepted his sin on the cross, his sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The resurrection is God the Father's statement. I approve of the sinless life and the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what the resurrection is all about. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't have a verdict. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't know what God the Father's opinion is on the matter. So it's finished. Jesus finished on the cross his faithfulness, being obedient to God the Father to the point of death. And then it was up to the Father to raise him from the dead to show his seal of approval that God really did place every single one of your sins on Jesus while he hung on the cross, that it was necessary for that to happen. And by the way, if observing the law would have been sufficient to get you into heaven if you could have observed all 613 of the commandments plus the other regulations that are given in the Old Testament. If that would have been enough to save you, then Jesus died for nothing. And this is what Peter is referencing when he says, why are you trying to put a yoke onto the backs of the Gentiles that we Jews haven't even been able to carry around? If a Jew could not be saved by adhering to the law, if you break one command, you've broken all of them. And that doesn't even take into account the idea of us inheriting Adam's sin. We're conceived in sin in our mother's wombs. 
We're part of the human race. That's why one died for all. That's why Jesus was born as a human being. There's only one Savior that was born. Remember, we talked about this. I'm going to say it again. There's not a white Jesus that died for sins. There's not a black Jesus that died for black people. There's not a Korean Jesus that died for Korean people or a Japanese Jesus that died for Japanese people or a Polynesian Jesus or a Melanesian Jesus. There's not even a Jesus who died for people in New Jersey. (laughs) One died for all. Jesus was born of a virgin became fully human without sacrificing his identity as God. God became flesh and lived among us for a while. It was necessary for a one-for-one sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice. You were in deep trouble. You might be in deep trouble now and you might not know it. The trouble, the issue is without someone making you at one with God, without an atonement, at one mint, without someone taking on your sin, you cannot take on your own sin. And it's ridiculous for us to think that there's something that we would think that is more important to God and satisfactory to God. Listen, if it was impossible to observe the law that God gave, the Old Testament law, then who are we to come up with our own law presented to God and say, because I've done these things, you should let me be saved. And so they're giving testimony here. Peter gives his testimony first about the Gentiles and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Barnabas and Paul give their testimony about the signs and wonders among the who? Among the Gentiles. And then verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. So now James is bearing witness as well. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon or Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So he's bringing the testimony of the Old Testament prophets into this as well. Just as it is written, verse 16, after this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. That's from Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. And I will restore it. And that remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So in the Old Testament, speaking about the New Testament time that's now happening right there with the Gentiles. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them four things, to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, meaning an animal that's been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This is a missionary sensitivity issue here, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. See them working together theologically and as leaders in the churches. It seemed good to the apostles and to the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. By the way, when you read the other epistles, it's Paul and 
Silas. You see Silas being introduced here as a key player in the New Testament. With the following letter, verse 23, they send Paul and Barnabas, these brothers out there, and they give them this letter. To the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, unity, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then they list the four again, that you abstain what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. (laughs) It's like, really? That's it? Ta-ta. See you later. Stay away from these things. Keep following Jesus. And you know, it's really important for us in the 21st century to embrace what they were understanding in the first century. This Jesus thing is not as complicated as we tend to make it. Don't make Jesus more complicated than he is. Don't make being saved more complicated than it is. It is we who tend to complicate what God has simplified. God has made it so simple, and we're going to dig into this even more here. Hopefully, you'll have an appetite that's so wet you'll want to dig into Acts chapter 15 and the other verses that I'm going to throw your way that you'll have fodder for all this week to feed yourself, to have a feast before Thanksgiving, to be thankful before Almighty God for all he has done in you, all he is doing in you, and all he's about to do in you. So they give them these four things in this letter, and then they say farewell in verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. See, prior to that, the Gentiles knew that there was this big powwow going on. Antioch was a center for Gentile believers. And the big holding of the breath moment is, so what's going to happen to the Gentile believers? How are they going to relate to the Jewish believers and vice versa? What does this mean for all of us? They knew that there was this big powwow between all of the elders in Jerusalem and the apostles and that Paul and Barnabas were going and they knew what the Pharisees were doing, kicking up dirt and saying, you've got to adhere to all of the Old Testament law, otherwise you can't be saved. So the Gentiles probably scratching their heads and pulling their hair out at its roots because many of them were not as familiar with the Old Testament law as a Jew would be because they weren't Jews. Now, many of them would visit the synagogues and they would hear the law of Moses read because we see that in verse 21 where James says, from ancient generations, Moses has been in every city those who proclaim him for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. But that doesn't mean that all the Gentiles were always going to the synagogues. So there's this kind of a holding of the breath issue going on here and the possibility here for tremendous division in the midst of this movement of God. Haven't you noticed that whenever God is moving, there are all always opportunities for division. Come on, now it happens in your family. It happens in the church. 
It seems like whenever something really gets going and the, the skids are greased and things are really moving, there's something that comes along and threatens to overturn the apple cart. And that was happening here. The Spirit of God is moving. Gentile believers, Jewish believers, how are we going to all get along together? And when they read this letter, they are encouraged. Oh, there's this sigh of relief. Oh, now we don't have to follow all those things that our Jewish brothers were following and not even completely exhaustively, right? So that's what it says in verse 31. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is a suggestion for Paul's second missionary journey. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. We see John in Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 13. In Acts 13, 13, this same John Mark leaves them and goes back to Jerusalem. So Barnabas wants to engage John Mark again in this second trip, and Paul says, fat chance. It's not happening. Paul did not like, at this particular moment, John Mark because he saw him as a deserter, saw him as somebody who gave up. So verse 38 says, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. You can read about that in Acts chapter 13 and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And that is the end of Barnabas for all intents and purposes. From this point on, the man that we hear from and his missionary journeys, the second missionary journey and the third missionary journey and the book of Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, all of those books are written by none other than the recovering Pharisee, the super apostle, the one as one abnormally born, the apostle Paul that we're reading about here. That's what we see in the rest of the book of Acts, Paul's missionary journeys. Paul, verse 40, chose Silas, and we read about him in some of Paul's letters, and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. It seems like the rest of the church affirms Paul's decision. And he, Paul, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. That's the role of a pastor to strengthen the church. That's the role of an apostle to strengthen the church. That's the role of a mature believer to strengthen the church. Now, I said in the beginning, I wanted to talk about the nature of salvation, and then I wanted to also talk about the evidence of salvation in a word, a million-dollar theological word that you need to be familiar with. It's a biblical word, sanctification, sanctification, sanctification. The evidence of salvation, whether or not someone is saved, is their desire to be set apart or to be sanctified. That's what that word sanctification means. To be sanctified means to be set apart. Now, in one sense, God, 
through Jesus has sanctified us once and for all. The Bible talks about positional sanctification, that we are made holy by God through the death, the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. The moment we give our lives to Jesus and accept him as our savior. If you have not given your life to Jesus as your savior, you're still in your sins, you are not saved. If you're not sure whether or not you've given your life to Jesus, you need to settle that issue to know that you know that you know that you are saved and that you are positionally sanctified, made holy by the blood of Jesus. And it's going to become so clear to you by the time we're done, because I'm going to give you chapter and verse. You're going to be able to take this home. You're going to be able to chew on it. You're going to be able to meditate on it. In fact, you're actually going to be able to share this with a family member. Amen. You're going to be able to share it with a friend. You're going to be able to share it with a neighbor. I'm equipping you so that you don't simply take my word for it, but you take his word for it, God's word, so that you're trained up and you're equipped, you're discipled, even through a brief message from God's word. You are discipled and enabled and equipped. I'm giving you the ability to fish for yourself. I could simply give you a fish, tell you this is what the Bible says and that's it, or I could teach you how to fish for yourself and that's what I want you to do because this is a multiplying church. Can I get an amen for that? This is a multiplying church. One of our five core values, exponential replication. Healthy things grow and replicate themselves. And you need to be doing that. Exponential replication. Why do we put the adjective exponential in front of the word replication? Because we believe, this is what we believe, that if you share the gospel with others and you are replicating yourself, then when you go to sleep at night, the person that you were sharing with and discipling, they're going to work on somebody else that you don't even know. You don't even know that person. But you did something in the life of that one person that's worth being replicated. You taught them, you instructed them, you showed them the way of life. You were salt and light in a distasteful dark world. You showed them how to live. You showed them, you taught them from the word of God. Just like I'm teaching you right now. You teach that other person and then what do they do? They go and they teach somebody else. That's what a movement is about, which by the way is one of our values because it's one of God's values, the movement of the spirit of God. You definitely can be, you definitely should be, you definitely must be a replicator. If you are not replicating, you don't understand the great commission. You are to be fruitful and multiply. You know things about Jesus. You know things about the Bible. Heck, you know enough right now from what we talked about just in our brief time together. You're going to know enough in the next five minutes to be able to share with somebody whether or not they can know that they know that they know that they're saved you can lead them to the feet of Jesus and salvation and you can help them understand as you are rediscovering the importance of sanctification being set apart. If you're saved, you are concerned about sanctification. You're concerned about holiness. You're concerned about how you live for Jesus. Let's look for a moment here because this is all in the scriptures here from Acts 15. This is a salvation issue. How is somebody saved? Are they saved by adherence to the Old Testament law? Are they saved by things that they do and by avoiding things that they shouldn't do? Is that how a person is saved? 
Or is a person saved only, exclusively, through the blood shed of Jesus on the cross and faith, personal faith, in the atonement, the atonement sacrifice, the substitution sacrifice of Jesus on that cross? It can't be both. It is one or the other. Well, look with me at Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, verses 16 and 21. Paul says this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. What does it mean to be justified? Just as if you have never sinned. When God looks at you, when you are justified by faith in Jesus, it is just as if you have no sin. That's the way he looks at you. You've been justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is why in Acts chapter 15, they don't tell them as the Pharisees wanted them to be told that you have to be circumcised and you have to adhere to all the Old Testament law. And this is a Pharisee. God needed a Pharisee to teach the Pharisees, right? how it really works. Look with me at verse 21 of Galatians chapter two. I do not nullify the grace, the undeserved favor of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If righteousness were through observing the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Look with me now at the book of Romans, Romans chapter three, verse 20. Hopefully you're writing these things down because they will help you be convinced. They will help you convince somebody else. How do I get saved? How do I make sure all of my sins are removed? How do I begin this journey of sanctification with God making me holy and then me being concerned about walking in holiness? Look at me at Romans chapter three, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law. God did it in the garden when he said, hey, you can eat the fruit and enjoy this whole garden that I've given you. Just don't pay attention to that tree. Don't touch it. This tree, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We become conscious of our need for a savior. That alone was the purpose of the law, to help us understand that we fall short of the standard of God, the glory of God, and the law helps us understand that, okay? Look with me now at Ephesians chapter two, verses eight, nine, and 10. Paul says this, for by grace, undeserved favor, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Gift by definition, something you didn't earn. It's given to you. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's the idea of sanctification that we're going to segue into in just a moment. But I want you to understand that this is the whole debate that was raging in Acts chapter 15. Is it enough to accept Jesus as your at one sacrifice? 
the atonement sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, the substitute sacrifice, is that enough? Or must we now observe all of the Old Testament? Is that the purpose of the Old Testament law? Now, we've already seen here from Galatians, from Romans, from Ephesians, I'm just giving you a little bit of a sprinkling with some key verses for you to commit to memory, some key verses for you when you go into your neighborhood or you go into a family gathering with a family member who's not saved or is not sure that they're saved. Or sometimes the most difficult people are the people who are religious people. I came from a Catholic background and I know about, and I knew about the sacraments. I was an altar boy. And there's this idea of the more sacraments you do and the more you practice or participate or observe in those sacraments, the more you have a clean conscience and the hope of drawing near to God. And listen, this is my story. You might say that's not true, but I'm not lying. I met with priests, Catholic priests, when I first got saved. And you might be Catholic. You might have been Catholic. You might know Catholics. Be gentle, be considerate. Be humble when you discuss with them, please, but also get them into the Word of God. I met with Catholic priests when I was at Rutgers University. I I honored my father and my mother because I was raised Catholic, and they were concerned that I was going off the deep end when I got saved and I started reading the Bible. And I met with Catholic priests to talk with them, and I remember meeting with two Catholic priests and asking them, well, how can you know whether or not you're saved? And they looked at me like a deer in the headlights, and both of them, I'm not saying that they're all like this, but this is my story, and I'm sticking to it. They both looked at me, and they said, you can never really know. That's what happens when you get away from the Bible. This is why you need to not simply trust what somebody else says about the Bible. Even though it's good to have elders, we see it in the book of Acts, apostles, we see it in the book of Acts. It's good to have those who are well-versed in the Scripture, but their being well-versed in the Scripture is conditioned upon them submitting themselves to the Scripture and not twisting the Scriptures. And so what was happening here in Acts chapter 15 was this big debate. What's the place of the law? What's the role of circumcision? And ultimately what it comes down to is when Jesus said it is finished when he hung on the cross, was he kidding? Was he being sarcastic? Was that a joke? Or was it finished? He either paid for it all or he paid for nothing at all. And you need to understand and I need to understand, your neighbors need to understand, your coworkers, everybody needs to understand as you're out there being concerned about being replicational, being concerned about replicating what you know about the gospel. And as I'm giving you some stuff for your arsenal, some scripture to be able to go and share with people, you need to be able to unapologetically, now you can unapologetically ask somebody, do you know whether or not you're saved? Because Acts 15.1 talks in very black and white terms, these are people who are saved. And do you know what the Bible says? You know, you can know whether or not you're saved. And I've given you just a couple of verses today that help you in your life group. By the way, if your life group is not concerned about the lost in your area, we call them life groups here, small groups. Listen, you are not going to a life group just to get more BS, as we say. Bible study. 
give me more Bible, give me more Bible, give me more Bible, give me more Bible. I got to go to my group, get more Bible, get more Bible. I got to go to my men's study, got to go to my, my women's study, got to go to my live stream, got to see a simulcast, got to get the new book, got to get this, got to get that, got to listen to my radio program, got to listen to my podcast, got to get all this stuff, 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 Boom, you should be overflowing in replication. You should be leading people to the feet of Jesus left and right. Left and right, you should be leading people to the feet of Jesus. That's why our life groups exist, to extend life to people who are dead in their trespasses and their sins. That's why we do life groups. And if you're tired of the same old, same old going to church, then you happen to have come to a church that is serious about this Jesus stuff. And we will help you be serious about this Jesus stuff. We will help you get serious about surrendering your life to Jesus and sanctification so that you actually replicate the life of Christ in you that God gave you. We'll help you with that. It is all about replication. A real disciple is concerned about the lost, concerned about replicating, concerned about reaching out. Many of us have so much Bible. We have done so much Bible study, but we have lost the understanding of the purpose of Bible study. The purpose of Bible study is to lead you to the feet of Jesus so that you have enough knowledge of Jesus as you sit at his feet that you then in turn lead others to the feet of Jesus so that they learn more about Jesus and tell other people about Jesus. But I hope that it's overflowing in your life, that you're getting some of what God is trying to deposit into you and you're being inspired and encouraged. Now, in our remaining time, I want to encourage you to understand the importance of sanctification as evidence of salvation. You with me? You sure? Acts chapter 15, they'd say it in verse 20. They say it in verse 29, those four things. Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled, and from blood. So what's the significance of this? Well, first of all, the gist, the spirit of all this is that it's basically cross-cultural, spiritual common sense. It's cross-cultural, spiritual common sense. You've got Gentiles who are not well-versed in the law, and you've got Jews who are well-versed in the law. There's one body called the church. They're now brought together. How are we all going to get along with each other? Well, generally speaking, Jews were against idolatry. So don't eat things, don't touch things that were involved in idolatry. Because if you do, you're going to make your Jewish brother get hot under the collar. So don't do that. Number two, sexual immorality. Porneia is the word that's used there. Sexual immorality. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 18 is what we're going to look at in particular, but I'm going to back up to verses 17 and read through 20. But he who is joined to the Lord, the apostle Paul says, becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Now he gives a reason. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, there's a sense in which all sin is equal. We need to be careful in the church that we don't have particular sins that we say, well, this is really bad sin. There's cardinal sins and venial sins and mortal sins, all this stuff. We have to be careful about that because even the sin as significant as gluttony is a sin that Jesus went to the cross for. All sin in that regard is equal, but, 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 
Here, Paul makes it really clear. All other sins that a man or a woman commits are outside the body. But when an individual sins sexually, they're doing something fundamentally against the temple of the Holy Spirit. Did you know the Holy Spirit lives inside of you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ? And one of the big things among the Gentiles, especially the Corinthians, one of the big things was going to temples and engaging in temple prostitution. But that wouldn't be the limitation of it. Some people say, well, that's all. It's just sexually deviant behavior. Well, listen, let me tell you this, okay? Let's define what sexually deviant behavior is from the Bible. Sexual immorality from the Bible is defined as all and any sexual activity or mental embracing outside the confines of marriage, which is defined as one woman and one man. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality, porneia. Sexual immorality is defined in the Bible as sexual activity or thinking, contemplating, looking outside the confines of holy matrimony activity between a man and a woman in the covenant commitment of marriage. If you are engaging in any kind of sexual activity and you're not married to that person who is of the opposite sex, I don't care what the politically correct terminology is. I don't care. Jesus would not care because God is the one who defined marriage in the first place. Any and all sexual activity outside the confines of marriage between a man and a woman is sexual immorality. And Paul gives us the reasoning because all other sins an individual commits are committed outside the body, but when a person sins sexually, they sin against themselves. So, staying away from stuff that's polluted by idols, that's just spirituality 101. Idolatry, what does that have to do with the lordship of Jesus Christ? It's completely antithetical to the lordship of Jesus. You shall have no other what before me? No other what? No other gods. It's idolatry. Secondly, sexual immorality. You're you're sinning against the very temple of the Holy Spirit. You're sinning against the Lord, who you have now, as a follower of Jesus, you're made one with the Lord spiritually. In verse 20, you could also look at it in uh, verse 29 of Acts 15. It talks about what's been strangled and blood. Common practice among the pagans, and believe it or not, there are people who were not so spiritual getting saved. Imagine that. There are people who were far from God getting saved. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of the gospel. So they're going to have junk in the trunk. They're going to have stuff in their past. They're going to have engaged in all kinds of stuff that we would just say, oh, I can't even imagine. Well, you know what? God could imagine it, and Jesus died for all that junk. Right. There were people who were involved in killing animals. They would have strangled them. 
not according to the principles of how animals were to be killed and eaten in the Old Testament, you know, dietary restrictions, but an animal would have been strangled. And if that animal was strangled, the blood would still be in that animal. Presents a big problem. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Huge verse of scripture to understand. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Now, let's go to Leviticus, that favorite book in the Bible that you've been doing your devotions in, that you've been meditating on. Still relevant, still pertinent for us today as we finish up our time together. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 through 14. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, meaning Gentiles, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement or at one with God for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Why was Jesus' blood shed? Here you go. Verse 12, therefore I've said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither any stranger, Gentile, who sojourns among you eat any blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is in its blood, its blood is its life. And so this is spirituality 101. This is how do we get Gentile and Jew together and fellowship together at the feet of Jesus. Farewell, brothers. Stay away from sexual immorality. Don't engage in anything that's been devoted to a foreign god and idolatry. Be sexually pure because otherwise you're violating the very reason of your body being a temple to the Holy Spirit. And don't eat anything that has its blood in it because you're violating the whole principle of scripture that leads to the pointing to Jesus who had to have his blood shed. He didn't just receive blunt force trauma on his head and die that way. His blood was shed as the spotless lamb of God to hang on the cross because it was the life of Jesus that was in his blood. Blood for blood, life for life. And what the apostles and the elders are teaching us in Acts chapter 15 is that salvation is by undeserved favor as a gift of God. The moment you give your life to Jesus who died on the cross, was buried and raised again. His death really was and really is enough for your forgiveness that you really can be saved. And once you really are saved, you will be concerned. Love your neighbor as yourself. Gentiles, be concerned about the Jews. Jews, be concerned about the Gentiles because we're not asking them to follow all the law. We're asking them to follow Jesus. And when you're really saved and you've embraced what Jesus did on the cross and the person of Jesus as being your God, when you're really saved, you will care about living a sanctified, set-apart life. It is the evidence of whether or not you're really saved. So if you don't care about idolatry, there's something wrong. If you don't care about sexual immorality, there's something wrong. If you don't understand the value of the blood of Jesus and the life 
for life principle that we just presented here, there's something wrong. But I have more encouragement when it comes to your life. I'm so much more encouraged when it comes to your life because you do know the truth. You know it even more now than when we first began. Isn't that true? And now you have some stuff that's in your back pocket that you'll be able to take out throughout the course of the week as you replicate, as you seek to hold out the word of life and share with your neighbor, your coworker, family members, and you replicate and you point people to the feet of the same Jesus who we've been sitting around in our brief time together. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.